BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, April 17th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. All right, so I have a question for you, and um, this is where things get a little bit intimate. <laughs> what is the one behavior that you wish you could stop doing, but somehow always feel compelled to do? Well, I'll do the twist on this. Here's the behavior that I do that my wife wishes I would stop doing, <laughs> and that's I, I've always had this behavior, and, and I feel like I learned it from my mom, where I kind of like cross my feet in bed and kind of like swipe them across each other and make it has this like really pleasing sensation for me and it makes this noise that kind of relaxes me before I fall asleep my wife hates it and I like I almost have to do it to fall asleep Oh, my God, that might have been TMI. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so mine is that I have this, like, if I'm sitting and listening to something, and it's not like truly riveting, I tend to pick at my cuticles. And like, it's like, I wish I didn't do it. But there's like this compulsion to like, well, you know, I'm just going to stop as soon as I get rid of this one little dry thing part sticking out. And it's just it's horrible. It's a compulsion. Do you actually wish you got rid of it? Or do you find some comfort in it? Well, I mean, I must find some comfort in it or it must I mean, it must be like just mildly entertaining enough so that if I'm slightly bored <laughs> at a talk, you know, or slightly nervous, it's like just gives me something to do with my hands. I mean, you know, this is maybe why I need some of those meditation ball things that people wore beads of some kind, you know, something like that. But that kind of repetitive behavior is really interesting because we feel as if we are in control of it. And yet when we try to stop somehow we decide or we somehow it's like this, this thing that we just, we just can't do it. But it's not like we're unconsciously doing it, right? We are aware of the fact that we are doing this behavior. And that's really fascinating to me is this notion that how much control do we really have even on the kind of behavior that we are aware of? 
So to understand this a little bit better, I talked to Sharon Begley, who's a senior science writer, and she just published a really interesting book. It's called Can't Just Stop. And she titled it that way deliberately, obviously. It's an investigation of compulsions. But unlike other writings in which compulsions just are one facet of a disease like obsessive compulsive disorder... Sharon talks about compulsions by taking the disease and putting it aside and just talking about the behavior and trying to understand this behavior that we have and this inability sometimes to turn off things that we know we probably shouldn't do, but for some reason feel compelled to do. You know, there's always been this joke like that this is my OCD behavior, but that seems like belittling to like the actual compulsion. Is that something we're, we're going to explore this week? Yeah. And there's also, uh, when you start thinking about it, this is a kind of a continuum because, you know, clearly at some point, you know, you started the behavior, uh, like say, you know, for my cuticles, I actually notice, you know, my mom does it too. So I think I know where I mirrored the behavior first. But, um, you know, there was a time when I probably did it once or twice. And, you know, but then for some reason, it became this thing. And then there was a period in my life where I really tried not to do it anymore. And, you know, my husband would touch my hands every time he saw me doing it and stuff like that. And I don't know, it kind of like just continued to evolve. But for other people who have other kinds of compulsions, there must be this kind of slippery slope where, you know, behavior just starts and they decide to do it again, and then again, and again, and then it goes from deciding to do this behavior to not being able to not do this behavior. And and that's where Sharon Bradley comes in. I feel fidgety right now. I'm a little <laughs> nervous about this interview. <laughs> All right, so let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Sharon Begley. There's always an excuse for not eating healthy. You don't have a personal nutritionist or you don't have access to the right ingredients. You're too tired to plan and shop and cook. Well, your body doesn't understand excuses and that's why Sunbasket got rid of them. Sunbasket makes it easy to cook delicious, seasonal, nutritious meals in your own kitchen. Get dinner on the table in 30 minutes it's healthy cooking made easy. And listen, in my family, both adults work outside the home. We have an active three-year-old. So there's not a lot of time to mess around. I've tried a lot of these different services and I have to say that Sun Basket is my favorite. And that's because the meals are really interesting. They're things I normally wouldn't have thought to cook, but they come out really delicious and it's really fast and easy and they're healthy. Each Sunbasket meal comes with pre-measured fresh ingredients and easy to follow directions. And one of the things that I like best is that they seem to be much more environmentally friendly than a lot of the other options out there because everything that they send is easily recyclable and it's delicious. What's more encouraging than that? Eating right starts now with Sunbasket. Go to sunbasket.com minds today and get your first three meals free. That's sunbasket.com slash minds to get three healthy, easy to prepare meals free. Sunbasket.com slash minds. Sharon Begley, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So I first want to ask, how does a habit become a compulsion? When it's something that you do, not simply because it's unthinking and you're used to it, but when it is driven by this deep, horrific sense of anxiety. What underlies all compulsions is anxiety, and the reason we execute them is that 
If we don't, the anxiety becomes simply overwhelming. So habits are more reflexive, um, but and you don't really think about how you feel. You just sort of do them because they're wired into a primitive part of your brain. But with compulsions, they are absolutely driven by anxiety. So is it fair to say that, you know, I might engage in a habit because it brings me some kind of reward or pleasure, but I engage in a compulsion to reduce something negative. So to get rid of something that is making me feel bad. I'm glad you put it that way, because the key difference between a compulsion and so many other behaviors is that compulsions do not have that element of pleasure, joy, fun, whatever. Um, I mean, one of the really difficult slogs that I did in, in doing this book was getting experts to try to explain to me the difference between an addictive behavior and a compulsion. So exactly as you're saying, um, it happens that addictions at least start with something that we absolutely love, that gives us a phrase I use in the book probably too much, is hedonic hit. It makes us feel really, really happy and good. But with compulsions, unfortunately, that step we just have leapt right over. There is no joy in the compulsions that we do. And so, you know, when I think about compulsions, I think about people having to wash their hands a lot, um, having to go and check whether the oven is on or off, maybe hoarding, you know, not being able to throw something away. Although I guess that's kind of like a, a, a negative behavior in the sense that it's the absence of behavior. You know, you're not actually throwing it away. Is this sort of how most compulsions look or is this just a kind of stereotypical view? That's pretty close. And what you've described are the, the, the symptoms, the manifestations of the best studied compulsions. And, and those are the ones um, associated with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So that is indeed a, a named psychiatric disorder, very well studied. Um, and what it has as one of its defining characteristics is that you have a thought, you have a feeling, that's the obsession. And because it causes you such anxiety, it drives a, a compulsion. That's the behavior that you execute, again, to, to drain away the anxiety. Um, hoarding um, used to be considered part of OCD, or at least a form of OCD. Now it's considered a totally separate um, disorder. Um, but what I found so interesting is that in so, so many of the behaviors that we do compulsively, they're not mental disorders. They're, they're, they're just ways of coping. Um, and when this was sort of crystallized for me, it was the idea that just because we engage in a compulsive behavior does not mean that our brain is broken. Instead, it could be the opposite, that our brain has found, has figured out some way to let us cope with the anxiety that we would otherwise just you know be crushed by. So does that mean that you know if I... It's a sort of a hard thing to for me to wrap my head around. So forgive me for not formulating the question particularly well, but it kind of makes me feel as if then this is just a continuum of behavior. And if I just feel like I need to do something before I leave the house, because otherwise I'm going to worry about it, um, that can start to be considered a compulsion. And sort of at what point does that line get drawn? From my perspective, having you know been training as a, a neuroscientist, I always think, well, it has to hit the criteria in the DSM. <laughs> like it has to, you know, prevent you from functioning in, in daily life and so on. So can you can you help me sort of figure out how 
these compulsions? Like where where does a behavior that is uh, driven to reduce anxiety become a compulsion? So you use a phrase used a phrase that I use a lot in the in the book, and that's the idea of a continuum of behaviors. Um, so you have to acknowledge from the outset that when it comes to human behavior, it's not like um, we have blood tests, we frankly don't even have neuroimaging tests that can distinguish when something is pathological, when it does deserve the criteria, when it does meet the criteria for a mental disorder, and when it is just, you know, a human eccentricity, a human quirk. So you mentioned um, the DSM injury, and I, you know, there's nothing better out there. So I stuck pretty closely to that. And in addition to for each diagnosis, the very specific criteria that you have to meet to you know, qualify for a diagnosis of major depressive disorder or bipolar or whatever it happens to be. Overall, in order for something, for behavior to be a mental disorder, it must cause either distress or impairment. Distress is obvious. Um, you, 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 you hate the way you feel or behave um, when you're in the grip of one of these disorders. Impairment, again, obvious, um, you know, related to OCD. If you have to wash your hands 100 times a day, if every time you leave the house you have to run back to be sure that you lock the front door, etc., that clearly is uh, an impairing behavior. So I, again, I applied the distress and impairment criteria to what the people I interviewed were describing to me. And if what they were doing was a coping mechanism, if it allowed them to you know, get through their workday, if it allowed them to manage their relationships and everything else, then it, again, by DSM criteria and, and every other, it fell well short of a mental disorder. And some of the patients that you describe, or I guess I should say people that you describe in your book, we don't necessarily need to label them as patients, have uh, what's interesting to me is they have very specific compulsions that don't bleed into other areas. So, you know, I think about someone with a kind of classic OCD, it's they might have like a phobia of germs. And so they they would approach a lot of different situations in which they might get germs on them with the same sort of behavior. But you describe people who would have just one simple compulsion. So one thing that comes to mind was uh, the Korean man who, after an aneurysm, found that he had a compulsion to pick up toy bullets from a park. And just that, no other collecting. Exactly. Um, and that, as you said, did result from an aneurysm. So there, there is a an acute physical trigger for what he experienced. And that offers a little bit of insight into where in the brain which circuitry probably underlies many compulsive behaviors. There was also the gentleman also in Europe um, who suddenly developed a compulsion to whistle carnival songs. So these can manifest themselves in very um, unusual ways, um, but much more common. So again, just for one thing, um, a woman I spoke to um, holds a terrific job in publishing. She is basically functional, but she has a compulsion that when she is speaking to someone casually, as she did with me, every time she hears the person she's speaking with say something, she has to count the syllables. 
So I, you know, started with something like, can I get you something to drink? And she was not able to respond to me until she had figured out whatever it was, 27 or something. And she just, if she doesn't do that, it's as if this sort of lava flow of anxiety is, is building up in her and she just can't take the next step in this case of answering a, a fairly simple question. Um, but I think something that illustrates your point even better is, um, again, just the idea of compulsive behaviors as allowing us to cope with anxiety. Um, a woman I spoke to um, keeps her house in a really seriously meticulous state. So it's not just that it's clean and neat, but every teacup has to be in exactly the right place. The bathroom towels must be hung up just so. The pantry cans are arranged in a certain way. And as with everyone I interviewed, I just tried to get her to you know, engage in introspection about what it is that might be causing her to behave this way. And she did say that if things are not the way she wants them, if they're not the way she needs them to be, she is filled with anxiety. Anyway, so she was able to remember um, many, many episodes in her childhood, she's now um, in her 50s, where she basically had a chaotic childhood. Her parents were either emotionally warm and then for no reason it seemed just very, very cold. Um, she wasn't allowed to choose her friends, what she wore, her toys, anything. So she felt that she had no control when she was little. And she then, one summer, had this epiphanic moment. Um, they were going to a little place where they would spend a couple of weeks and everything was a mess because they hadn't been there in a long time. And she told her mother, let's not worry about cleaning up the whole thing. Let's just make this little island of you know, neatness and calm and control, an island of order in this otherwise sea of chaos. And when I was speaking to her now, decades after her childhood, she said, you know, when I think about it, I look out on this crazy world where we live and I can't control much of what happens there, but by God, I can control what's inside the four walls of my house. And the compulsive behavior to do this, she explained, just diffuses the anxiety that would otherwise paralyze her. You've just like hit on one of the things that cause me the most anxiety, which is, you know, my my mothering of my toddler, <laughs> who also seems to have very bizarre uh, opinions. So, you know, he won't wear a certain shirt today, but he'll wear it, you know, every day next week. The book that we read today is no good tomorrow. And I've always kind of explained it as, you know, it's his need to exercise some kind of control. Uh, is that something that we can point to in people with compulsions that in fact, there was something that happened in their childhood that uh, brought some of these behaviors that we see as being perfectly normal in a three-year-old, but now abnormal in an adult? Right, so the short answer is for many of the people I spoke to, they were able to remember um, an episode or a period in their life that they traced their current behavior to, not in everybody. So that could be either because there was no such episode or it could be because they, they just don't remember. Um, and the, reason, the, the causes of compulsive behaviors are not well understood. Um, certainly for OCD, there is some genetic component, not a strong one. You know, there can be identical twins who have basically the same DNA, the same genes. 
one might have OCD, the other does not. Um, but to, to the point about you know sort of episodes in one's past that can push you down a road toward compulsive behavior for the rest of your life, or at least for a good deal of it. Um, I spoke to a woman who has a terrible, terrible hoarding problem, and I asked her when it started. She said, you know, she did not do this when she was a little girl. But after she graduated from college, she was moving um, to where she was you know, going to live and work as, a, as an adult for the first time on her own. And she didn't have a lot of stuff. Um, it fit all in you know, her little car. Um, so it was you know, books and records and papers and clothing and just you know, all the stuff that we accumulate as college students. And she parked it. And the next morning, the car was still there, but all of the contents had been taken. And she said, you know, looking back on it, that made her think, I mean, she felt bereft. Again, it was papers, it was letters, it was things that were, were very meaningful to her. And she said, never again am I going to let any object, anything that has come into my possession, out of my possession. I'm just going to keep everything. So, you know, it's, it's easy to do these sort of um, ex post facto explanations, whether that truly is what has triggered her current hoarding behavior. She thinks so. I have no reason to doubt her, um, but at least that's how she feels it all began. It seems, though, that in such cases that a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, which would be akin to what we do when a person has a phobia, you know, kind of slowly getting them comfortable with the behavior and understanding that the consequences of not doing what it is that they are compelled to do are not as grave as they might think would be very effective. Is there any data showing that, you know, you can do eight or 12 weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy and cure someone of compulsions? Yes. So CBT has indeed been shown to be effective with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, the other disorders, the, uh, forms of compulsion have not been as well studied. But for one that's very common um, in 2017, um, digital compulsions, you know, our compulsion to text and check for emails and use social media and, and everything else, um, much of that also is driven by anxiety. In this case, um, FOMO, fear of missing out, um, the, the worry that we feel that we're going to miss something, whether it's something from our boss or from a friend, anyway, all of those things. Um, in the little research that's been done, it's at least some people have found that if they can pause for even a moment between when they have the feeling, uh-oh, I have to check to see what you know, texts have come in or whatever, if they can just pause a little bit and ask themselves, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this? And then question those feelings, because um, that's one element of CBT, right? I mean, CBT basically tells people to think about their thoughts in a different way. Um, for some people, that has been effective. Now, again, the, the, the phenomenon, the behavior is so new that there is there, the precious few studies seeing what might be done to you know, help people pull back from it. But because CBT has been shown to be effective in sort of the mother of all compulsions, right, OCD, um, there's at least reason to hope that it could be applied to these other things. And I'll just add one thing to that injury, which is that um, because many of these behaviors are not official diagnosed mental disorders, you, it, it's hard for, to get reimbursed for treating them. And where there's not money for treatment, there's often not money for research. So these have become a little bit orphaned. And so as these 
behaviors kind of fall on a continuum and a person can, you know, to what extent do they kind of cure themselves out of it? I mean, is there also a continuum in terms of how long the behaviors will affect someone? So I spoke to people who are past it, as well as those who are still definitely in the grip of a compulsion. Um, I'll give you an example of one man who felt compelled to have CT scans, like all the time. Um, he would feel a little bit of a headache. He went, rushed to the doctor or to the um, emergency room and demanded a CT scan. Um, he was finally able to overcome that with a form of CBT specific to um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, but others, I mean, as I've done, you know, radio shows and, and things like that, I've heard from so many people who said, yep, I tried CBT, I tried mindfulness meditation, I tried uh, medication, and nothing has helped. And that, too, underlines how mental disorders are, you know, just remain mysteries and challenges, more than challenges, to, to the medical community. And just because something has succeeded in a statistically significant sense in some study does not mean that it will succeed in every individual patient. And I really have to say, I really appreciated how you pointed out that although certain types of brain trauma can cause compulsions or ACD-like behavior, or even certain drugs, that that doesn't mean that everyone who shows such behavior has that same problem. Um, so I want to sort of get into a little bit of that brain basis and to sort of help our listeners understand why that might be. So starting from uh, individuals who say have brain damage to a particular circuit in the brain, um, tell us a little bit about what can be the kind of organic cause of a acute onset of compulsions. Right. So in those cases where there, again, was an acute trauma, um, you know, you mentioned the example of the aneurysm before, um, the, the site of the, of the lesion of whatever the damage is, is often in the prefrontal region. So that's the area of the brain just behind the, the forehead. Um, that's the region that is involved in so-called higher order thinking. So that's reasoning, problem solving, looking into the future, judgment, um, attention, so-called executive control regions. Um, and you can understand how if those are damaged, then something that you feel like you just really, really have to do, there's no part of your brain that says, well, well wait a minute, do you, do you really have to? Um, an even stronger correlation is, again, because OCD is the best studied of these, um, with the so-called OCD circuit, also called the worry circuit, which is centered in um, a region called the cingulate gyrus. Um, and this is a region that in, in all of us, um, healthy people and people who are having difficulties, tell us when something is amiss, when something has gone awry. And you know, to put it uh, simply and perhaps simplistically, in people with OCD, that part, that circuit is overactive. So as they go through their day, they're constantly getting signals from their brain saying, uh-oh, something is wrong. Um, but there is no specific signal that explains what form their OCD will take. Um, you can't do a, you know, an fMRI, a PET scan, and, and anything and say, oh, 
I see there's overactivity in this circuit, and therefore the person thinks that her hands are always covered with germs. But this person thinks that she left the stove on, etc. So again, clearly, whether it's in neuroimaging or, or anything else, there's still a great deal to be done to understand the brain bases for all of these behaviors. But what about the reward circuitry? So the parts of the brain that are traditionally involved in learning habits and skills that are related to rewards or punishments, um, what do those regions of the brain have to do with compulsions? So those are the circuits that are often described as the dopamine circuit. Um, dopamine is the neurotransmitter, the neurochemical, that's most linked to the sense of reward. Um, and decades ago, when it was first being studied, um, it, it, it was thought that dopamine is particularly involved in giving us a sense of, wow, this feels really, really good. Um, and it's still often described that way. But in fact, what dopamine seems to be a marker for is telling you whether something that you expected was, turns out, to be as good as you expected, or if it fell short of your expectations. So in the case of, or the reason this uh, relates to compulsions is, if you think that something is going to be really, really rewarding, and it wasn't, then the gap between expectation and reality causes a sense of um, disappointment and of anxiety that drives us to try to make the reward as good as we hoped, expected, thought it would be. And this really comes into play, again, with um, electronic devices, um, especially video games, but also social media, texting, everything else, where Let's take the, the, the texting example. If we expect that a text is going to be really, really great, you know, come join me, I'm doing this, whatever, and it's just, you know, the, the usual, um, you know, information light and not so great um, text that most of us get throughout the day, then we feel compelled to keep checking, and it makes it that much harder to avoid checking. Um, similarly, in video games, I mean, these things are designed, they're set up so that people expect hope and they think that they are going to get a reward, they're going to get to the next level, they're going to find the Easter egg, they're going to get some great power, loot, whatever. And because video games are hard and they're set up to be this way, they often fall short. So again, your expectation has exceeded reality. That produces a dopamine deficit, which drives us to try to build it back up. And the way you build up your dopamine is by having reality meet expectations so we keep feeling driven, compelled to do something that would bring us the reward that we originally missed. And you had such an interesting way of rethinking the original Olsen-Milner study where, you know, you implant an electrode, a stimulated electrode into the circuit and uh, rats uh, press a lever. And, you know, we always used to think, well, they're pressing a lever at the expense of almost everything else because it's so rewarding to press that lever. It's giving them a shot, you know, into this, into these reward regions that's pleasurable. But as you point out, like, we don't know if they were doing it because it was pleasurable or if because not doing it was causing them anxiety. 
Well, exactly, and I, I certainly take no credit for that. I mean, that's been the um, sort of reinterpretation um, that scientists have been doing for those classic experiments. What were they, like 1954 or something? But again, I mean, that was interpreted as, oh my God, these rats prefer to press a lever so that they get a dopamine surge more so than to eat or drink or have sex or, or anything else. So it was thought, God, you stimulate the pleasure circuit and all sorts of things um, you know, can be overridden in terms of just basic uh, you know, drives for staying alive. Um, and in fact, the original paper was called Pleasure Centers in the Brain. And honestly, I mean, you still see that all the time. But, you know, we don't know what the rats were thinking. Um, and as scientists reinterpreted all of this, um, you know, it just wasn't clear, um, especially when they tried to do a simulation in people, whether the subjective reports, I mean, we don't know what the rats were thinking. And when it was done in humans, the electrodes stimulating the dopamine regions didn't really cause real pleasure. Um, so, so again, there's been a great deal of rethinking about the dopamine circuits and reward and what drives us to act the way we do. Um, you know, the original simple explanation was probably not quite right. So now is there seemingly an increase in the number of compulsions that people seem to engage in? Did you find a sort of a trend in that direction? Or as mindfulness meditation and some of these other kinds of ways of self-treatment are proliferating, do you see that things are plateauing or even getting less common? So the numbers on this are not great. Um, you know, roughly one or two percent of people with OCD uh, or one or two percent of the population has OCD. Um, you know, one study said that gosh, what was something like 16% of U.S. adults engage in compulsive buying. Um, but remember, compulsive buying is not a diagnosis. So that comes from a survey that basically just asked people to self-report. It wasn't uh, psychiatrists or any other physicians making a clear, you know, semi-objective diagnosis. So, but the answer to your question is, it's not clear if compulsive behaviors are increasing, in at least for those that are diagnosable, for those that qualify as disorders. Um, there's no question that we have more opportunities to be compulsive, and at the risk of sounding like a broken record, those obviously, again, are the electronic devices that, um, that, that just engage us compulsively. Um, and the, only, the, the, the thing that has increased, however, are reports of anxiety. Um, you know, for as long as the American College Health Association has been surveying college students, depression was always the number one thing that students reported as uh, that they were suffering from, that impaired their academic work, etc. And only in the last survey, um, it came out a couple of years ago, for the first time, anxiety was the number one thing that the students identified. So, you know, we, we would need a sociologist to talk to us about why we may be in another or a new age of anxiety, but something about the world we live in these days. Um, and obviously, I wrote the book before January 20th and even before November 8th, but something about the world today um, is just spurring more and more anxiety, some of which is coming out in compulsive behaviors. There's also seems to be an, an increased interest in hoarding behavior. There have been a couple of documentaries that have come out in the last few years, some uh, great exposés by The New York Times and The New Yorker. So what do we know now about what's going on in the brain of a hoarder? So, and not only in the, you know, respectable places that you mentioned, but for 
reasons that I confess I never quite understood. Hoarding, of course, has become a favorite topic of cable TV, where you know some poor person is the subject of an episode, and you know their their situation is shown and depicted, and the person trying to help comes in and basically throws out everything. Um, so, but hoarding has been fairly well studied, um, and again, is now a recognized psychiatric disorder apart from OCD. It now stands alone as its own chapter in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So with hoarders, um, going back to an earlier point, they do seem to have difficulty with executive function. Um, uh, again, this is these are the functions controlled by the prefrontal cortex. And many of them do seem to have lower activity there, especially when they are asked to make a decision. So when you think about hoarding, the most immediate thing that you can identify as being a problem is people cannot make the decision to let go of you know, the, the newspapers that come in, the magazines, the old clothing, the takeout cartons. I mean, the, the list goes on forever. So people with hoarding disorder have an impairment of executive function. Um, and that sounds like a bad thing, and, and probably it is. But another thing that people with hoarding have is that they, and this is a difference that is um, quantitative but not qualitative compared to the rest of us. And by that I mean we're all attached to something, and probably to a lot of somethings. Um, an example I give in the book is, um, you know, I was working on New Year's Day of 2000, of the, of the year 2000, and that was, of course, supposed to be Y2K, and the computers would all crash and this and that. So anyway, I was walking to work that morning, um, and I was walking through Times Square, which, of course, had had the big ball drop for New Year's Eve the night before, and there was all this confetti on the ground. And I thought, wow, you know, year 2000, Times Square confetti, I'm just going to pick up a few little pieces. And I still have them. I mean, they take up no room in my little apartment, but I have them. And I wouldn't be devastated if someone took them away from me, but, you know, I kind of like them. And there are things from my children's childhood, etc. And I think we all have something like that. So I offer that digression simply to say that hoarders have this in an extreme way. They are sentimentally attached to just many more things than the rest of us are. And again, it causes many of them great difficulties, but one of the things I tried to get across in the book is, you know, maybe just pause for a second and ask if having, you know, a, a, a huge heart that embraces so much, if you have a heart that finds meaning in so many more physical objects than other people are able to find meaning in. Um, you know, maybe we should just pause a moment before we condemn and make fun of people who have hoarding disorder. But do you think that hoarding is a little bit like a slippery slope in some way, in the way that some addictive behaviors can be where, you know, if you just never tried the drug to begin with, you never would have gotten addicted or if you had just stopped after the first time, you know, that there's this kind of uh, once you start, you can get into a spiral, but that there, there's a way of kind of not going there? Or do you think it's sort of inevitable given uh, the sort of life circumstances and the brain basis uh, of hoarding? Yeah, um, it seems inevitable is a strong word. Um, it, it sort of implies that someone has no um, volitional control over anything. So I'm not sure I would go that far, but neither do I say, oh, just think yourself out of it. Um, that's actually why the book is called what it is, the idea of telling people, oh, just stop just completely 
you know, be, shows that you have no understanding of what's going on here. But as far as hoarding goes, I guess from the people I spoke to and the, the people who do have, who are hoarders, and also from the psychologists and psychiatrists who study them, it was not that they started with a little bit. Um, it was that they went from not hoarding to as soon as they had the opportunity to hoard, and that could be when they were living on their own for the first time, they just went down that path, but in, in a big explosive way. Um, again, the example I gave earlier of the woman who lost all of her stuff. The next week, she, she just stopped getting rid of anything that she acquired. Um, so it doesn't feel like it's an, it, it, and it's not an addictive behavior. Um, uh, addictive behaviors, as you implied, have tolerance. So we have to keep doing more and more of them. But addictive behaviors are also characterized by bringing pleasure. And I can tell you, and all the experts can tell you, hoarders do not derive any pleasure from keeping their stuff. It's, it's the opposite, that if, they, if their stuff is taken away from them, if they are, for whatever reason, forced to get rid of their stuff, then they are just you know, crippled with, with, with anxiety and, and sadness. So I want to end with one more kind of query, and that is... To what extent do you think that some of these compulsions might have positive effects? And let me give you an example of, of what I mean. Um, there are people who have what we call highly superior autobiographical memory, uh, who seem to remember everything they did on any date randomly that you can pick. Uh, so April 14th, 1994, they'll say, oh, yes, that was a Wednesday. I had dinner with uh, my friend and then I went to a concert. And amazingly, they actually are very accurate. And uh, people who study these individuals have found that the problem is not that they, you know, learn more or remember more on any given day, but rather that they don't forget. Uh, they show much less forgetting. Most of us forget what happened yesterday within, you know, 24 hours or a week at least. Um, and that's because they compulsively remember. They also are have been shown to have, uh, you know, more brain matter in the caudate nucleus, which is one of these uh, parts of the brain that is implicated in OCD. And so it's this idea that they're compulsively remembering, but it actually gives them this really unbelievably good memory. Are there any other cases that you came across that sort of have that almost like savantish quality to the compulsion? There were a lot of cases where compulsions were are, are positives, um, and that because people felt more in a given situation, they were driven, they were compelled to do something about it. So that's why I included a whole chapter on you know, sort of the positives of compulsion. So an example of, um, again, driven to do more than the rest of us because of anxiety, because of a compulsive feeling. Um, I talked to people who donated a kidney to a stranger. And, you know, as I drew them out and asked, why did you do this? Um, you know, when the rest of us read about all the people who are on dialysis, um, who can't lead a normal life, who are waiting for a kidney um, for a transplant, and many of them die before they get one. So we all read about that. But a tiny number of people who also read about it just can't you know, turn the page or go on to the next conversation. They felt compelled, they felt driven to do something about it. And in this case, they, you know, started the, the process 
and carried through to donate a kidney to a stranger. Um, you know, there are, all, are also examples of, of, of artists and writers and others who are drawing on the compulsions that they feel to do good in the world. Um, so I, you know, came away from all of this reporting and research, um, going back to your earlier point, Andrea, about all of this existing along a, a spectrum, a continuum, with the conclusion that absolutely the same anxiety that drives problematic compulsions can also drive us to behave in a compulsive way that is to the good of ourselves or to the larger society. So I'd like to take a moment to remind our listeners that uh, Sharon Begley's book, Can't Just Stop, An Investigation of Compulsions, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Sharon, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. It was great. So one thing I picked up on that, you know, kind of struck me after the interview is that her comment that there's essentially no investment in this area. And if there's no investment, there's no treatment, there's no research, there's no naming of whatever this is in a way that we can understand it more thoroughly. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of how we used to think about drug addiction. People didn't really want to study addictive behaviors uh, or addictive you know, substance addiction because there was the sense that the person, if they really wanted to, could just not drink, not take the drug, right? And now we know that, you know, the story is much, much, much more complicated than that. And I think now the same is going to be true about compulsive behaviors, where they're not the same thing as substance addictions. Uh, they follow a different trajectory. They have perhaps even a different purpose. And as Sharon notices, they come in many different varieties and probably don't have the same underlying cause. So I think that until we see that compulsions uh, have a sort of measurable impact on people's lives that is negative and needs to be solved. And then, you know, some kind of company or, or organization finds a way to monetize that solution. Uh, it's going to be hard to get funding. And we see a lot of characters in film and television that, that embody these characteristics. But it also seemed from Sharon's assessment that, you know, Cognitive behavioral therapy, basic CBT, can address most of those situations. So let me flip that back towards you. Do we even have a need to really explore this further? Well, I mean, I think any uh, human behavior that has so many facets and touches so many lives and is, you know, can just be a lens in terms of our under a better understanding of the brain. So for me, even just from like, you know, let's forget about necessarily trying to stop the behavior, just understanding it is going to teach us a lot about our own minds. Uh, and it gets at parts of our minds that are in that gray area between consciousness and unconsciousness, which I think is, you know, part of our brains that really demands a lot of exploration. You know, there's so much going on in our brain that we're simply not not aware of. Um, the vast majority of what our brains are doing, we are not aware of. So this is kind of a window into a part of that interface that I think is really interesting. So going back to the top of the show, we both talked about a behavior that we think we might have learned from a parent. And going to your question in the middle of the show about watching the the quirks that your son has, how self-conscious were you after this interview? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very self-conscious, but also it felt a lot better uh, and, and not quite as worried because, you know, we, so so much of the time, compulsive behavior, as, as you mentioned, too, at the beginning of the show, is kind of just tied in with a disease, obsessive compulsive disorder. So if you see someone engaging in a compulsive behavior, all of a sudden it's like, oh, is, does this person have this terrible disease that has really dire consequences? And 
And so as a parent, you know, that's always the worst fear is like, um, is my child showing symptoms of a disease that is going to plague him for the rest of his life? And now, though, after having read Sharon's book, having listened to her talk about it, I'm much less concerned about that. Because I feel like even if he showed, you know, a number of repetitive or some compulsive like behaviors, that certainly doesn't mean he has OCD. I just think he's quirky and unique. (laughs) Yeah, that's yeah, he is. He definitely is. That's how I talk about my son. So that's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds. Thank you for joining us. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgul, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Not too many of your compulsive habits. (laughs) Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me picking my cuticles on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>